Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our kids. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. I want today's program to be a mixture of a year-end summary, a celebration, and a hard look at a fundamentally changing America. And I'm going to do that by focusing on what was a tumultuous year, 2023, in what we like to call in the university labor relations, but is really the story of the relationship between the employees and the employers of America. It used to be called correctly the class struggle. I won't do that because that phrase still worries some people. Lord knows why. So I'll just talk about working people and employees and all of that and just skirt some of what has to be talked about because the time we have, this program isn't enough. I begin with Yale University, and I do that basically for a personal reason. I was a graduate student at Yale University. Some years ago, yes, but I was there for many years studying in the economics and history departments, getting a master's degree in the history department and a PhD degree in the economics department, and then teaching at Yale as well. So I know what it means to be a graduate student at Yale, and I remember crystal clearly the kind of shabby treatment that we all got used to. We were the low people on the totem pole, the ones who counted least. We were below an instructor who was below an assistant professor, who was below an associate professor, who was below a full professor. And oh, wow, did those differences matter. You were supposed to get by on a stipend, which was very little. I was well uh, off in that situation. I had gotten fellowships and so on. But I knew even with them and even more without them, what a struggle it was for many students if they didn't come from independently wealthy backgrounds. And Yale kept telling us, sometimes in these words, you are so lucky to be here You should just suck it up that we don't give you enough money to live decently because you're going to be so much better off once you get that Yale degree under your belt. I remember thinking how similar that is to what religions have told people for so long. Yes, your life is difficult, but right when you die, it's going to get much, much better. And we had the same sinking feeling about what it meant. When I was a student, the only union on campus was one that we heard had had a hard time, but represented the building and grounds people, the blue-collar workers who kept the situation functioning in all the 200 buildings the university owned and operated. But the technical and clerical workers, no union. And the graduate students, no union. Did they need it? Oh, 
Wow. I remember as an economist realizing that the statistics showed that the average income in New Haven, Connecticut, where Yale lives, was lower than the average income in Bridgeport, Connecticut, a heavy industrial city 45 minutes away. And the answer I looked for and found was simple. The workers in Bridgeport, Connecticut, blue-collar workers in factories, were unionized and got paid what the unions won. The white-collar workers at New Haven, Yale is the largest employer, in case you're wondering, in New Haven and has been for many decades. Yale doesn't pay. It doesn't have a union for its clerical and technical workers. So the average income in New Haven is lower than in Bridgeport. Wow. So here's my hats off. A few years after I left Yale, the technical and clerical workers joined the same union, Unite Here, Hotel Restaurant Workers Union. So now there was local 35 for the building and grounds and kitchen workers, local 34 for the clerical and technical workers. And now, and that's why it's on the program today, local 33, the graduate students have won a union at Yale. Finally, after years of struggle and every effort Yale could put in to prevent it, to stop it, to slow it, that university has been defeated and the workers have won. And that's worth a few minutes of thinking about it. And it's an event of 2023. A bit more history before we go into some other important milestones. And before giving you this history, let me tell you where I take it from, because it is a source and a resource many of you may also want to think about. It's produced by my friend Mike Elk. It's called Payday Report, and you can find out all about it by going to their website. Payday Report, just like it sounds, dot com. Payday Report. He keeps track of strikes. And here's the most important fact of the last few years in terms of labor, in terms of employees versus employers. Since March of the year 2020, we have had 3,000 strikes across the United States. Wow, that is an amazing statistic and comes after decades of relative labor peace, labor quiet, lack of workers standing up. You know, it takes a lot for a worker to join a union. It takes a lot for the union to mobilize all those people, especially in our culture. And then for those people to vote, to take a cut in pay because they stop working, to use the weapon of the strike because it provides not only they don't get income, but the employer doesn't get profits. They both suffer in the hope of generating a better relationship between them. That takes a lot of work, a lot of courage, 
a lot of risk. 3,000 since 2020. It's worth stopping to consider what that means. And perhaps the most dramatic this year, among many dramatic strikes, was that that lasted the longest. 206 days. That's the length of the strike. 206 days of the strike by the Writers Guild of America and the Screen Actors Guild, the so-called WGE SAG-AFTRA strike that began on May 2nd and, as I said, lasted 206 days. It was the first joint strike of these two unions since 1960. That's over half a century, folks. They were stronger together than they were separate. They had to learn that lesson again. It's the most basic lesson of the labor movement, which is why they're called labor unions. They unify people. Not only were those two unions the key ones, but here are some things that happened because of the extraordinary 206-day strike by the unions working together in solidarity across different unions. But they were joined often on the picket line by Latina hotel workers, members of the Unite Here Union, by the way, the same union that organized all those folks at Yale University that I mentioned to you. On the East Coast at Yale, for university employees, on the West Coast, hotel maids and workers, Latina immigrant origin workers in the same union, more solidarity. And going on to the picket lines of the writers in Hollywood, more solidarity. And there were also Teamsters who joined from the United Parcel Service, another huge strike this last year. And as Payday Report, in its latest issue of its journal, points out, during the 206 days of the writers and actors' strike, not only did we see this kind of solidarity of these other unions, but we saw, count them, 8,000 other people join unions, form unions, win unions in other parts of the entertainment industry. There were 49 unionization drives that signed up 8,000 workers. Their solidarity showing its power to build the movement, the solidarity among unionists generates more unionists. And if ever you wanted a recipe for success and growth, there it is. I want to end this story about the remarkable strike of the writers and actors by quoting one of the folks who was on the picket line, a writer, an actor himself. You know his name, Boots Riley. And here's what Boots Riley had to say. He didn't expect it when he walked the picket line and went to the union meetings. He didn't expect a change in the culture of the United States that he was used to having been born and grown and worked here all of his life. 
but there was a culture of solidarity that he he could not get over and that he's been telling people about, almost as if he were another Paul Revere riding through the countryside on that horse, saying to people, not the British are coming, since that's no longer relevant in the world, whether they come or not, but telling to them, there's a new spirit in this country, and it has animated the labor movement, and it is giving workers strength, courage, and power that no one expected to see, and that he, Boots Riley, is just this side of ecstatic about. And I'm pretty moved by it myself. Okay, next. The Starbucks saga. I call it a saga because this has been now going on for two to three years. For years, Starbucks expanded, raking in an enormous amount of money, becoming a major U.S. corporation, setting up thousands of coffee shops around the world, making a ton of profit, lifting the shares of its stocks on the stock market, and never a union anywhere. They were a proudly anti-union organization, and they proudly showed off no unions here. And then, over these last two or three years, just as Mike Elk of Payday Report tells us, the unionization wave hit. And as I'll tell you on the second half of today's program, it hit Starbucks with a bang. We've come to the end of the first half of today's economic update. I'm going to have even more to tell you about the labor movement and the stunning discoveries it is making when we come back. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. We are devoting this program to the labor activity of this year and its historical setting. And we were just talking about Starbucks. We'd barely introduced that topic before the mid-program break. This gives me a chance also to thank publicly the research that went into some of this material that I have received help from from Charlie Fabian, the same fellow that I recommend to you to write to if you have suggestions for this program. And once again, charlie.info438 at gmail.com is how you reach him. But this is also to thank him for his research. So here was the stunning event, in my judgment, around Starbucks. Over the last two or three years, when Starbucks has had to face the fact that unions have come and come in a big way. Just to give you an idea, 360 Starbucks stores voted to unionize already. There are 100 complaints about all the different things Starbucks did to try to stop, block, prevent, destroy unions and unionization efforts 
pending right now before the National Labor Relations Board. So the unionization move in Starbucks is now deep and wide and continuing and very strong. But the most important thing I want to draw your attention to was a decision of the National Labor Relations Board this year to command, to mandate, to order the reopening of 23 Starbucks coffee shops that had closed. One of the things Starbucks does, as best we can tell, is consider clothing, uh, closing stores rather than have them go union. And of course, workers know that, fear that. That fear is played upon with rumors started by who knows. You can guess, but we don't know for sure. And so if the company actually closes stores, it appears to the workers to be a, a threat everywhere. If you've unionized, you store in Wichita or you store in Minneapolis or you store in Tallahassee, well, then you risk the store closing and your job disappears. Well, imagine it's no longer a vague fear when the National Labor Relations Board weighs the evidence brought by the union and decides that the union was right and that the stores were closed as part of an illegal anti-union activity on the part of Starbucks. And on that basis, the NLRB ordered the reopening of those stores and requiring Starbucks to either come forward with new evidence for the NLRB to change its mind, or else Starbucks has to reopen those stores, give those jobs back to those workers, and pay them for all the time between when they were let go and when the store has to reopen, which is early in 2024. This is an enormous issue, but it teaches also a lesson. Why? During many of the labor actions that Starbucks took, strikes and so on, and during the closure of those 23 stores, what did the customers of Starbucks do? Because Starbucks was either less able or unable to keep those stores going. They went to other coffee shops. And in particular, they patronized worker co-op coffee stores in a half a dozen cities around the United States. It's a remarkable story. And you know what it does? It raises the following question. Maybe there's a hint here into a new strategy for the workers at Starbucks everywhere to consider. When you feel as though, or when you are told by some manager that if you dare to unionize or you dare to strike, then the, the coffee shop will be closed down. Maybe there's a strategy in which workers would smile at such a threat and say right back to the manager or the Starbucks, uh, Starbucks representative, go ahead, close it, be my guest. Because you know what? The minute you do, we, the unified workers, will open up 
a coffee shop right across the street or down the block. And we will advertise that all the people who used to go to Starbucks liked what they got, liked the service, liked the conversation. We're all here. Starbucks went away, but we and the delivery of coffee didn't. That would make Starbucks a lot less likely to not meet the needs of its workers if it faced a competitive threat of that sort. Something for the workers unionized already, unionized not yet, to think about as their strategy. I want to call out next the 5,000 employees of the National Institutes of Health. That's a federal government agency working all the time to improve the health of the American people with research and experiments and all the things that they do in centers across the country. They are prohibited by law, the Federal Labor Relations Act, to be precise, from striking as public employees, and they are also forbidden to bargain over wages even. In the face of those legal limits, which ought not to be there, which violate the whole spirit of free collective bargaining by employees, they have decided to form a union and to fight to get the right to be a proper union. So they're joining a union to make an even stronger union. And they had a vote this last year. And I want to tell you what the outcome of the vote was among the skilled high-tech biology researchers in the National Institute of Health. 1,601 in favor of the union. Against? 36. I'm going to say it again. 1,061 for the union, 36 against. And we will be watching how that evolves in the months and years ahead. My next update goes outside the United States because, of course, labor is in motion elsewhere. Here's a story from Britain. The British Conservative Party, and remember, when you talk conservative, whatever else they're talking to you about, whether it's abortion or guns or immigrants, their real business is always serving the employer at the expense of the employee. That's true here. That's true there. That's true everywhere. Well, the new law of the conservatives in England, in Britain, is called the Strikes Minimum Service Levels Law. And here's what it cleverly says. If a strike is important in the view of the government, then the government can say there have to be maintained minimum service levels. In other words, the government will order striking workers during a strike to cross their own picket lines to go back into the job to make sure it provides minimum service. These are railway workers. And by the way, we have that in this country basically too with the railway uh, laws in the United States. And they were used by President Biden, as you may remember, in the not so distant past. But in Britain, it would affect one in five workers. Uh, given the role of the government there and, and what they consider to be basic services. So the labor movement is fighting back. 
they're not taking it at all. The Trades Union Congress, that's roughly their equivalent of the AFL-CIO, has denounced it publicly, is mobilizing workers to understand the law, and has called for a national march and rally on the 27th of January against the law. They're making the union movement active politically against the law. The Fire Brigades Union, that's roughly the equivalent of our firefighters union, has announced that they will not order their workers to cross their own picket lines to man the fire stations. In in other words, they're directly defying the law. Hmm, this is the labor movement, or if you allow me, the class struggle heating up, friends, the way it always has periodically, because that's how the capitalist system works. Which brings me to my final story for today. It's a story about the difference between reform and revolution when capitalism hits its wall, hits its own limits, undercuts itself. And to tell the story, I'm going to very quickly recap American labor history, going back to the last time American capitalism literally collapsed. It's the Great Depression. It starts in October of 1929 and lasts for the next decade. And during that time, workers in America joined unions on a scale we've never seen until now. We are beginning to see something similar. It's the heroic period of American labor. It's when the workers went to the government, led then by President Franklin Roosevelt, and said, you've got to help us through this terrible collapse of the economic system, or else we're not going to vote for you, and you won't be president, you won't get elected dog catcher. The president understood the threat was real, and the president met them. And he said to them the following, I will give you more help than you even asked for. I will make the business community, the employer class, do it and pay for it. But you've got to stop talking about revolution. You've got to stop talking about changing the system. Is that a deal? And the unions and the socialists and the communists who were very active in that organizing period of the 30s accepted the deal. There were those who didn't want to, but then basically they accepted it. And we got the reforms. Social security, minimum wage for the first time, employment compensation if you lose your job, and 15 million public jobs for unemployed people. Spectacular wins that we call reforms of the system. But now here comes the lesson we need to see in this year of labor upsurge. After Roosevelt died in 45, after the war was over, after the depression was a memory, the employer class went to work with the government to undo everything that had been won by the labor movement and the socialists and the communists. They tried to undo Social Security. They're still trying. The last time we raised the minimum wage was in 2009 even though prices have gone up every year since. There is no public employment program, and the unemployment is a joke. Wow. 
What's the lesson? If you don't change the basic system, then even if you struggle and win as a labor movement, your wins are temporary. Your wins are vulnerable. Your wins will be undone. Why? Because you've left in place the employers, their wealth, their power, the fact that they get the profits of this system. And of course, as we've learned in the last 50 years, they can and will use their money, use their power to control the politics and to take back what labor struggles won. That's the real choice between reform and fundamental change before us now. Thank you for your attention. And as always, I look forward to speaking with you again next week.